Hello and welcome to another episode of PC Speaking. I'm your host, Chris Miller, and I will be your guide as we travel the globe looking for what's old and gold as well as what's new and true. We explore the realms of spirituality, well-being, and whatever else happens to catch our fancy along the way. I'm the pastor of a Christian church in possession of a set of well-studied and thought-out beliefs, but I want to hear what's on your heart and mind, even when it's different to what's on mine. Now, it should go without saying, but if you're someone who needs to hear it, here it is. The views expressed in this podcast are the views of the person expressing them, not necessarily yours or mine. If you feel triggered and your blood pressure starts to rise, then hit the pause button, take a deep breath, and scroll on by. With that in mind, sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride. Hey, Chase, what's happening, man? Hey, Chris. How are you? I'm doing well. How about you? I'm all right. <laughs> yeah, cool. Hey, what part of the world are you in right now? I am in Papua. Yeah, cool. Cool, cool. Yeah. Man, well, see, it's been a while since we've talked. I think the last time we spoke is when you uh, had the run-in with the snake, if I remember right. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. You, you, what were you doing when that happened? I don't even remember. Yeah, it was a post. There was a flood. Oh, man. Just dropped. Oh, anyway, we had a big flood here mm-hmm. in yeah. Santani. And uh, we were helped cleaning up a friend's backyard and anyway i was picking up a fence post and when i picked up the fence post there was a snake under there and didn't like me moving his home no no decided to bite you and then then you had uh a fun ride all the way across the pond over to brisbane hospital hey no the the ride was you know Many, many times worse than the actual bite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, cool, man. Well, I, I, thanks for taking the time to do this. I appreciate it. Um, yeah. So you're Chase Reynolds, obviously, and you've been working with Wycliffe Bible translators for a while now, right? Yeah. Well, I think we're, this is our 15th anniversary, 15th oh, year with Wycliffe. Wow, has it been that long? It, um, yeah, I remember. Let's see. I remember you moved. Yeah, so we uh, we've been in in um, in Indonesia. I guess this will be thirteen years, but we've been actually, yeah, working with uh, Wycliffe for a while. Hey, thirteen years. Yeah, because I I remember you guys came over to this part of the, well, kind of this part of the, we're sort of neighbors almost. Um, well, for this part of the world anyway, but we came, uh, yeah, I think you guys came about a year before we came to Australia. Yes. Yeah. yeah we got, we got in Indonesia in 2008, but we were yeah. members of Wycliffe before that. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, what was it that first drew you to that? Because, I mean, it's pretty cool. We get into it and talk about what you guys do with that. It's really interesting. But what, what drew you there in the first place? 
Yeah, you know, it was a, a bit of a process, but really the first thing was I was I was in Bible college and I was taking um, Greek, uh, New Testament Greek, and I mean I was just a nerd uh, with that kind of stuff, and so I was like always going to my professor's office, Praven Bong, Praven Bong, Doctor Praven Bong was my professor. And I was like always going to his office with questions and things. And one day he said, you know, Chase, you really ought to think about doing Bible translation. I was like, what? I mean, why? I mean, we've got like a bunch of Bible translations. Why, why would that be important? And he said, no, I'm talking about for people who don't have the Bible in their language. And this was back in 1998. And I was like, what? And he said, yeah, you know, you know, for tribes and people groups that don't have the bible in their language and man that was just that sent me on a path of thinking and reflecting i'd never even thought that there were groups of whole groups of people that don't have the bible in their language and and i was just you know the more i thought about that and the implications of what it would mean if you didn't have you know if you didn't even have an opportunity to to the children eventually ended up with what I would call but um it all started there really wow yeah that um 98 gosh you, you how old were you in 98 in 98 that's a good question let's see <laughs> <laughs> Got to do the math. I always Got tell to... people I'm a linguist, not a mathematician. 98, I guess I would have been uh, um, 23. Oh, wow. Yeah. So you had to do a fair bit of education to get to the point to be able to do what you're doing now. Um, is that right? Yeah. I did a little more than I actually had to do. Uh, uh, undergrad and then um, I did a MDiv and then uh, uh, and then a Master's of Applied Linguistics. Okay, yeah. And then how how did you get connected with um, Indonesia? Yeah, so when we uh, you know was really full steam ahead into uh, Bible translation, you know, we just began to look around uh, and you know, where, what languages needed Bible translation. And then, um, and there were really kind of three areas of the world that really kind of were, were like the major areas with the most languages that needed translation. And those were Nigeria, Indonesia, and Papua New Guinea. Mm -hmm. And so we were kind of focused on learning about those areas and praying and, um, and then in, in the, the year we joined Wycliffe, 2006, we were down in Orlando, Florida at kind of a training um, uh, training uh, event. And we were just sitting around the table uh, talking one evening. And one of the trainers there had, uh, they've been in Papua at that time for about 20 years. And um, she was just telling some stories from Papua and she was telling one story about her husband did a language survey besides translation. He did language survey, just kind of helping to identify uh, language 
borders where one language stopped being used and where another one began and you know drawing maps of language uh, language maps and during the process of one of those language surveys this was Andrew Sims um, in, in 91 92 they were doing a language survey and they uh, identified a couple of previously unidentified language groups and she was telling some stories about those and how the people were really wanting, they had heard about another group, a neighboring group that had gotten some translation and the impact of God's word and that they were wanting that for their language. And at that time in 2006, she said, no one has gone there yet. And we walked away from that evening, Kelly, my wife and I, and we were just looking at each other saying, we really feel like God's calling us to that people group. And, um, and so we just began to just move in that direction towards Indonesia, towards Papua. And um, that was probably, A, the, the fact that that was one of the areas of biggest needs and then a really compelling story of, of real people and real desire that really kind of put us on that trajectory. Mm. So what, what was the process like and maybe how long did it take once you had had that conversation, you actually landed on the ground there? What was right from like? it? Whoops. I think I may have lost you. Let's see if it comes back. <laughs> okay. Oh. Sorry about that. That's oh. a, part of the joys of being where we are. No, that's cool, <laughs> man. It, it, it kind of adds to the uh, um, character of the podcast. <laughs> 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 yeah. here in australia we've got pretty good internet but like today it's been a torrential downpour and it's just i don't know what uh, it is but the internet always goes bad when it's raining i don't know it gets in the fiber okay yeah cables or whatever but anyway we were i just i think i just asked um you know you'd had that meeting and that chat and then you know what was it like from that time until you actually got to, to where you are now or landed yeah, in country. Oops. I think we lost you again. <laughs> oh, had you there for a second. Okay. We're back. Sorry. <laughs> I switched, I switched, uh, I switched off our, our home Wi-Fi and switched to the uh, data plan. We'll see if that helps. Oh, you see if that helps. Okay, cool. Cool. Yeah. It's, it's, it's always fun when you have those technical glitches and things. Yeah. Okay, so uh, I don't know. I was in the middle of answering, uh, you know, how how long it took to get from that conversation to here. I don't know if you got that answer, but it was basically from two thousand November two thousand six to March of two thousand ten, and it involved finishing up our uh, a master's in applied linguistics, and then we moved to Indonesia in November of two thousand and eight, and then we spent a little over a year learning Indonesian, the national language of Indonesia, uh, before moving into Papua and then moving into the, into the tribal area. Oh, wow. It took a, took a while. It's not a quick process, is it? No, it was. And really, really when you think from 98 to 2010, the whole big picture was quite, quite a process, but, um, yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's really just kind of the beginning, isn't it? Because, uh, you know, once you get there, that's when the actual work starts, huh? 
Right. Yeah. That's when you can begin. (laughs) (laughs) That's when you can start after 10 years. Yeah. So what's that process like? I mean, you go there and you have this uh, people group who needs the Bible and, you know, most of us would have no idea how that works. What, What do you do? Yeah, so the, the where we work is uh, the Yedfa people, they uh, previously had no written language, and there also had been nothing, no real study of their language. And um, um, at that time, no uh, outsider, and I would say no non-Papuan had actually ever learned the Yetva language either. Um, so what, you know, the big step was just to begin to learn their language of course no rosetta stone or anything like that um Mm -hmm. so it's just a a process of you know learning slowly learning their language uh you know analyze that that's what my degree is in applied linguistics of taking an unwritten language and developing a writing system you know analyzing and understanding the language often Kind of describe it like like a jigsaw puzzle, you know, and somebody dumping a jigsaw puzzle out and having no picture, you know, you really, you know, you kind of there's some kind of principles of how you would work a jigsaw puzzle, even if you don't know what the actual picture is, you know, you find the corners, find the borders, you know, similar colors, stuff like that. So, uh, you know, there's certain things about languages that you you know should be true, and so anyway. Uh, just beginning to understand the language was the the primary uh, place where we started. And that took a couple of years to really get, um, you know, I wouldn't say fluent, but to really kind of understand uh, the, how the language worked. Uh, it's very, very different than, say, Indonesian. Even though it's in Indonesia, uh, it's a very completely different language group. It's as different as Korean is from English. It's just a total different structure. And um, so um, just learning the language was the big step. And, of course, the culture that is just intimately tied to language. So um, that that was the first step. And and um, beyond that was, you know, helping them to um, find the. we say develop a writing system. It's also said, also said, reduced to writing. You know, how would they represent their their language in in writing? And um, of course, you know, people often ask you know, how you do that. And so the the main thing is just what alphabet do you use? And so the kind of rule of thumb is you just use whatever script the national language uses. So if you're in uh, you know if you're in Russian. If you're somewhere in Russia, right, you'll use a, uh, the similar script. Or if you're in Thailand, you'll use a Thai script. Or if you're in somewhere in the Middle East, an Arabic script. Well, in Indonesia, they use a Roman script, ABCs. And so that, for us, made it easier. Um, but then assigning, you know, what, what sounds go with each letter and so on and so forth. Um, yeah, so that's, that was yeah, kind of that's... the first step before Bible translation. Oh yeah. Well, and I guess at some point you you would have to teach the people that written language too, wouldn't you? Right. Oh yeah. So um, yeah, 
teaching literacy is the other half of that. Thankfully, uh, when we first got here in 2010, this was not the case. There was not a lot of uh, literacy, in, even in their second language, which would be Indonesian. Most uh, Yetfa speakers speak a very, if they speak Indonesian at all, they speak what we would call a, a very marketplace um, level of Indonesian. Um, but in recent years, uh, opportunities for kids to go to school have opened up. So you have a kind of a age group of, you know, kind of older teenagers who have uh, become quite literate in Indonesian. And so those uh, literacy skills directly apply because of how we uh, uh, made their, the, the, their writing system similar to Indonesian. And so they can just take those writing skills and go right into, into Yetfa. Now for you know, other people who don't have that type of education, uh, beginning to do simple literacy uh, work is also necessary. Mm. Okay. Well, hey, something just popped up in my head while we were talking about the the kids going to school. Um, I know, like in Western culture, there's been some struggles with, uh, say, between governments and indigenous peoples. How, how has that worked out with the Yetfa people and the government there? Has that been a positive relationship, or has it been some struggles there, or uh, there's some struggles, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> there's, there's so, there's so much that's really good about it. And there's, you know, there's some, there's some real misunderstandings because it's a, it's a wildly cross-cultural uh, situation. It's just some misunderstandings, I think, that are kind of make some unfortunate struggles. But um, I would say, I would say overall, the, the, it's more beneficial than it is uh, detrimental for sure. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's positive. Yeah. But, um, so we've done, you, you learn their language and then you, uh, <laughs> I guess you figure out how to write that language down. And that's, that's, I guess that's where we're up to so far. Then when you, you teach them that language, right. And then where, where do you go from there? Yeah. Right. Well, uh, at the same time, kind of overlapping with that, we began doing some um, oral Bible stories. Uh, it became really clear, actually, on the very, very first day I actually stepped into the language area mm -hmm. that, that this process couldn't uh, wait. You know, them getting access to the gospel could not wait <laughs> till we had learned their language, till we had developed their uh, uh uh, reduced their language to a writing system and taught literacy and all that. Um, so we began pretty early on working with some mother tongue speakers to translate simple Bible stories. And um, so even before they had a writing system, uh, before we did any uh, written formal translation of scripture, we had uh produce like 50 oral Bible stories beginning in Genesis all the way to Revelation to give kind of an, a panoramic view of mm -hmm. the message of God's word and really kind of em emphasizing the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so uh, during that process, you know, it was kind of overlapped with the language development 
And so by the time we got to the end of that process, we were able to begin to write those stories down. But if that was primarily a, a, a you know an oral exercise, and still even now most people have access to that information on you know audio files or just retelling the stories. And so, uh, so once we get to the to the actual writing system, we've got some material that we could go straight into in terms of writing it down uh, for for Bible material. We wouldn't call it scripture because a lot of the stories are simplified, um, but they're they're really faithful to the original uh, passages that we uh, translated from. Mm, yeah, I, you know, and I suppose that that actually is probably a that that oh I suppose the method of verbal stories that's been a big part of history um, for Christians as well and some people may not realize that but for a long time most Christians couldn't read or yeah yes that's right for most of history most Christians have been illiterate uh, or what we call preliterate or whatever and it became I don't know if we have time for just a quick story um, sure yeah absolutely man. Yeah, so the first day I flew into the Yetfa area, um, we landed in this village of Dulles, and uh, we were there, and uh, you know, I had a Yetfa speaker with me to translate. I didn't know the language yet, but I was speaking Indonesian, and he would translate into Yetfa. But we gathered this group, uh, the village together, and I began to share with them our vision, our call to, you know, come, we want to learn your language. We want to help you read and write in your language. And we want to translate God's word into your language. And when we got through, I got through telling that and he got through translating this whole crowd just began to, you know, talk and back and forth amongst themselves. And, and I didn't have a clue what they were saying. Um, so I was just waiting there and finally, uh, somebody had mercy on me. One of the younger guys in the, in the back of the crowd stood up and he said, you know, what you're telling us is really good news. And he said, you know, and they're all excited about it. And then he's, then he looked at me and he, this guy's name was Judas. I learned his name later. And he looked at me and he said, but please hurry. And then he pointed at the elders who were sitting on the front row. He said, do you see these old people? He said, they don't understand a word of Indonesian and they will die soon without ever hearing these words that you're talking about. And it was just, I mean, you know, I talked to it. It took like 10 years to get there. <laughs> and, and it was, uh, and we also knew this is a long process. This is not something that happens fast. And so I'm sitting there, it was like getting punched in the gut. And I thought, you know, um, you know, previously, you know, I knew all that. It wasn't any new information, but it was different because I was now, I was, it was not those people, some abstract people, you know, out somewhere. Uh, he was pointing at these people, these people right in front of you are going to die. And they've mm. never heard these words. And so we began praying and thinking, you know, Lord, how do we, how do we do this? How do we? How do we get the gospel to these people fast, faster, you know, and really the answer really was uh, oral, simple oral Bible stories. And 
And after that, it was just like, you know, we didn't have the wisdom to do, figure that out on ourselves. But afterwards, we realized, wow, this was really, really very strategic because everything they believe about reality, about the spirit world, you know, every cultural value they have, you know, passed that down from generation to generation to generation through oral stories. They have this whole set of stories, you know, that they tell that teach their cultural values, their history and things like that. And that's their primary way up to this point in history of sharing those things. And for God's words and the truth of God's word to enter their culture that way was very, very important. We didn't realize it at the time. This, this guy, Judas, had the foresight to stand up and say, please hurry. Um, but um, it kind of forced us to do that. Uh, but mm -hmm. since that time, those stories have been very critical in everything that God's done there since that time. Yeah, that is such such an interesting thing to think about and, you know, stories and spoken word and how, you know, like you said, for the greater part of Christian history, most Christians have been illiterate and it has been stories. Yeah. Um, I was talking to someone the other day and we were talking about cathedrals and like the stained glass windows and big cathedrals were, were Bible stories because people couldn't read. And that was, you know, they learned from those. That's so it's right. Really, really fun to dig into that stuff. It's, it's super interesting. When, yeah. when you, when you uh, first started to work with the Yetha people, what was their spirituality like? I mean, were they, I, I, I don't know, what were they? Were they Christian? Were they not Christian? Were they? Uh, the vast majority would identify, at least in the village that we were working in, not throughout the Yetha area, but uh, in the village that we were working out of, kind of based out of, most of them would identify as Christians but it was it's a you know a veneer of Christianity over a very deep uh, animistic uh, background, and so you know it's you know Christian in, in a you know or, or they would identify as Christians in one sense until you know somebody gets sick, and then it's <laughs> it's a very different uh, situation or until it's time to go hunt or plant your gardens, and then it's very very different. Um, from what we would understand as, as Christianity. And so, um, but having said that, there were a handful of like truly true believers and mm -hmm. they were very, so very critical and still are, I mean, to today, I mean, right now, um, people who were believers before we got there um, have been the backbone of, you know, this whole uh, translation and kind of uh, church uh, planting type, uh, in, you know, ministry. Um, so, so it, it, the gospel had penetrated in, in 2014, we celebrated what they would call the 20, 20th anniversary of the gospel coming. They, they would say in 1994, you know, they heard the gospel for the first time and, mm. um, and so they were familiar to some degree, but everything that they had heard uh, about it was in a second language. <laughs> and, um, and they really had a very thin understanding of what 
the gospel was. Yeah, that's, I suppose most of us, I mean, have been, you know, around the Bible and internet and all these things, the understanding and to be, I mean, you would know more than the rest of us would just to be, see that and be steeped in that. That's such a different worldview and way of seeing things. Yeah. Yeah. Probably just your average, even your average unbeliever or, you know, just totally unconcerned Western person would have more of a biblical worldview than, than anyone, you know, just from, from it saturating a lot of our culture and literature and, you know, such like that would have more of a biblical view than, than they began with. Yeah. Western culture is very, um, even for people who, who are very secular, it's still, yeah. Culture is very biblical based. Um, are there, is there something there maybe just as an example, I've just added for my own curiosity, is there something there that, that is cultural that would be a big difference kind of like that? Like for instance, just this probably isn't the case there, but like we think murder is wrong, but that's because our Western culture is based on a biblical worldview, not because we're, you know, inherently that way. Is there something like that in yet culture? <laughs> probably everything. And I'm not telling you from my point of view, it was so funny in that, in that 20th year, anniversary we did some uh interviews with some of the the elders some of the elders men we just said hey you know tell us because these are guys who live through an incredible change in their culture and you know tell us uh you know what 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 was what was it like before the gospel in fact they uh, you know when we talked about celebrating this 20th year anniversary i said hey you guys put it together you 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 know how however you want to celebrate let's celebrate it and they came up with this whole uh, they did three days of celebration, and like the first day was all about what we were like before the gospel came, and then the second day was all about how the gospel came, and the third day was like how it is now, and it was the first, uh, the third day was like the first time those Bible stories, it was actually at that time, it was only 17 Bible stories uh, were actually told in their language, but um, the first day Man, I mean, they had all these, well, they had all these cultural, you know, demonstrations, but they also set up this whole kind of drama of war and hatred. And, and then later in those interviews, you know, we just asked, you know, what, what was it like? And one of the old men, he just shook his head and he said, we were, we were bad. Uh, we were, we, it was a very, very dark, uh, it, we lived in darkness, is what he said. And uh, he, you know, uh, in their culture, if you met somebody in, on the trail, I mean, it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's as remote as you can imagine, you know, out in the rainforest. And um, one of the reasons they weren't discovered for so long is they didn't make clearings and such, you know, they didn't build out in the open. And so um, they just lived under the canopy of the rainforest. And, but if you met someone on the trail that you didn't know is immediate, I mean, it was, it was, it was a fight to the death immediately. And, um, you know, this, this, they were just killed one another. Uh, if you didn't, if I didn't know you, one of us was going to die. Um, yeah. So, um, so just on that level, you know, there was just quite an interesting background. 
Yeah, there's. I know um, in that part of the world, there's there's a, a fair bit of uh, cannibalism in the history there. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, it's very interesting. Uh, at least uh, in groups in around our area, they wouldn't consider that. Yes, there was what we would consider cannibalism, but they don't consider it cannibalism. They they only. <laughs> consumed people who were no longer people. They had been um, taken over by evil spirits to the point that they were no longer human. And um, so anyway, that's the very interesting uh, thing. They, they would never, they would say they would never eat another human. But if they yeah. were no longer human, it was something that they felt like they had to do. So it was it was um, okay at that point. Yeah. It was something they should do at that point. Yeah, it's and it's amazing how powerful culture is. Um, yeah, it's yeah. If and if you if you never have the opportunity to get outside of your own culture, you really it's difficult to understand how much it shapes you and what you think mm-hmm. and what people perceive as right and wrong. Like you know eating someone else you know well they're not really human you know is where we would perceive that as completely wrong but from their perspective you know that's what you do that's normal and yeah culture is so powerful so, so yeah. yeah where are you where are you guys at now with your with your translation yeah so now you know one of the things that uh well i have to tell i have to tell another story uh, yeah. From that same from that same trip, after we left that village of Doulas, we were kind of taking kind of a survey trip. We visited three different villages, and um, so the second, uh, the third village we visited, we were doing the same thing. We got the people together and we told them, uh, you know, we want to come, we want to learn your language, help you read and write in your language, and we want to translate God's words into your language. And then at the end of that this uh this guy came up to me it was so funny because uh i had been i had met some yetfa teenagers in town and had learned a couple of words from yetfa and been trying to start doing some language learning before we went into the area and um and they told me they were like you need to meet Sion. Sion knows english and i'm like <laughs> and it's funny i'm like okay because in our context, if somebody knows English, it means they say, good morning. How are you? I love you. You know, they've got like a few phrases that they'll say. I was like, okay, CO knows English. So anyway, we, I'm in the village and I share this and this guy comes up to me afterwards. And I, I can't set this stage correctly. We were like 96 miles. How many kilometers? I don't know. I've been in Indonesia Uh, long enough. I should know. (laughs) Yeah. 150, 160 kilometers away from anything. I mean, from anything It's absolutely in the middle of what we call the sea of broccoli. Cause when you fly over it, all the trees just look like an ocean of broccoli out there. Anyway, um, this guy comes up to me and he says to me in English, He says, I have been praying for many years that God would send me a friend to help me translate the Bible for my people. And here you are. (laughs) And I'm like, what just happened? It was like this most surreal moment, maybe in my life, Chris. I was just, I was just like, what? 
And uh, obviously this was Sion. And Sion uh, was from the area. Um, matter of fact, from a very, well, the most important family in the area. But he had grown up, uh, spent some years, not grown up, but spent some years in uh, PNG, just across the border, and did uh, some school, I think through like fourth grade in PNG, and mm-hmm. learned, learned some English. Now, his English is not that great, but he had been practicing for years what, what he wanted to say <laughs> when he got a chance. But uh, so That's anyway, awesome, man. but you know, how, how it leads into your question. One of the things that God also put right in front of us in that first trip was there was somebody there who had, I mean, Sion, I mean, we're talking about a decade ago or more. Um, um, he had this call, uh, he wanted to translate God's word into their language. And so we understood very early, our job was not to translate, uh, God's word into, into, um, Yetfa, but to train and to prepare Sion. And there's another guy, I always feel bad for Yeri. Yeri, Yeri doesn't get the fun story about because Yeri doesn't know English and he wasn't the one who came to me first. But there's another guy, Yeri Ani, who um, who has for over a decade, you know, he's just, Sion and Yeri are the main translators. And we have spent most of our time translating or uh, training them, you know, sitting side by side, doing it together. And, and now today, I mean, like literally yesterday, Sion called me from from the village. They've got they they've got a little mountain there, Mount Tokonam, that if they climb up the mountain, they can. And you have to stand in this this exact. I always wonder how they found this spot. There's like this <laughs> one spot you can get this signal, and uh, if you stand in this one spot and hold your phone just the right way, then you can get a, a signal. He called me from the village the other day, and there. They're almost finished. They've uh, they've almost finished with the first draft of Ruth, and that's just to say that where we are now is they have taken over as the primary translators, and so they do uh, the rough draft or the first draft of of a book or passage, and I have moved out of the translators seat into a consultant role for them. So. They send me what they translate and I look at it and I give it feedback. Okay, this is good. Okay, this is not quite accurate and um, stuff like that. And so mm-hmm. we've uh, finished the book of Luke, went to Ruth and we're going to move on. Uh, Ruth is really, we picked Ruth because it's a really easy um, or <laughs> not really, but it's one of the easier books to translate uh, for as kind of their uh, inaugural uh, solo uh, book to translate. And mm-hmm. so, um, yeah, in a really good place in the translation. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, I, I did a little bit of that uh, Bible translating and it's not easy, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Easy. Even into your, even into your, uh, your native language, it's, it's not an easy thing to do. Well, and it's it's complicated even further when you have a culture like Yetfa where there's so many. I just, I mean, there's, there's, just on one level, there's just, uh, you know, things that they're totally that they they just don't even have words for. I mean, you think about, you know, like Ruth. You talk about barley and 
<laughs> you know, there's no barley in the middle of the, <laughs> you know, so what do you do with, you know, so, you know, some of the challenges of what do you do with, you know, just, you know, they don't have any sheep, they don't have, you know, certain things. How do you translate that when there's no, you know, in the target language, there's just no word for that. And so, uh, it, you know, when, when you and I do translation, uh, we do it into a language that has this rich vocabulary and there's no shortage of words we can. Matter of fact, probably the, the biggest challenge for us is to pick which of the words is the most uh, mm. appropriate uh, for this Greek or Hebrew word, when they do it, a lot of their challenges, there's no word that even comes close to some of these things. Yeah, and that's, so that's, that's pretty wild. Uh, most of my uh, translation ended with uh, graduation from seminary. Uh, any, yeah. any substance anyway. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, that's that's such an interesting thing. There's so much work goes in that. What are some of the biggest challenges you've had in that over the years? Uh, in translation itself, yeah, or just ministry in general. There, in your work there, I mean, there, I'm sure there's challenges with you know living and and then the work on top of it. And yeah, uh, you know, I, I would say uh, in um, in terms of just pure, in terms of just translation, you know, one of our uh, biggest biggest challenges is what i just said you know what what do you do when there's no word or when there's no concept and and things like that those are pretty pretty common challenges in translation um in terms of you know just kind of life um it's it's really really quite challenging to learn not just a language, but a cult, learn a language in the context of a culture like the Yetva. Um, you make a lot of mistakes. And, um, and you know, the, you got to have a, I'm not, I, you have to learn, you don't have to have it, but you got to be willing to have, you know, learn some degree of humility because, you, know, you kind of come in as the expert. It, oh no! <laughs> All right, how about that? Oh, that's good. Actually, at uh, that time, I had you clear as clear as a bell. I must have died on my end that time. No, you know what? It was my. Uh, I was on my uh, handphone there, and my handphone died. I was not paying attention to the battery. Anyway, oh, oh that. Let's <laughs> so over my laptop. Okay. Um. Yeah, isn't that fun? So, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh well, you know. So I'm saying, you know, you come in, you're, you know, you've got multiple graduate level degrees, and you come in as some sort of expert, right? And uh, and you're a child. I mean, you're worse than a child, right? You're a <laughs> you're a man child. You like no, you <laughs> yeah. you do stupid things. You don't even know how to say, I don't mean to do stupid things. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it was, it was really, it's really, it's really humiliating, really. And um, mm -hmm. so, uh, you know, being, being willing to, uh, you know, kind of be humiliated was kind of one of my bigger struggles. But, you know, if you're ever going to, if you're going to do it, uh, that's, it's necessary. I mean, that's the only way to learn. Um, 
that yeah. was to get in how, there. how did you find that people handled that when you uh went through like the cultural faux pas were they pretty gracious or patient or were they uh, impatient or well praise god he sent me i mean they he sent us to the right people i just we just always just are amazed at how um how well we fit in with the Yetfa people there uh i you know i love to laugh and, and they are they are they love to laugh they love to laugh at you i mean like really like <laughs> if you do something stupid they're gonna i mean it's like they're gonna laugh at you and um it's one of their cultural ways of handling shame, you know, so, so, so that you're not embarrassed, let's just all laugh at you. And mm -hmm. so, you know, laughter, I love it. So it was, yeah, it was okay. They were very gracious. And if they weren't gracious, they, they didn't tell me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They, they took it easy on you. huh? And the other thing is, is uh, very early on, I told CEO and Nieri, I said, look, you have to tell me, you know, I, I know it's kind of not, you, you, you know, it's kind of uncomfortable and you might feel awkward about it. You have to tell me if I'm doing something stupid. And so they, uh, they, they came into their own. They like that role. Yeah. <laughs> so, they, they, they took full advantage of that. huh? Yeah, they, they embraced that. <laughs> Excuse me. So yeah, you've, you've been, over there in Indonesia for quite a while. Is it, is there anything you miss You're Cause you're from Arkansas originally, right? Yes. Is there anything that you miss from the U S at this point? I miss my family. Uh, you know, mm. just, just today, um, my brother, uh, you know, his, his wife gave birth to another niece, you know, and, uh, you know, I, I, I miss my family. Uh, I miss my family missing, you know, my boys growing up. And um, so, I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. I miss cheeseburgers, right? I mean, like I miss yeah. cheeseburgers a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Matter of fact, on our first furlough, we, and we were getting ready to go back the first time we've been here for like three years. And, and uh, we, we laugh at it. We, we call it our food low. Um, it wasn't like, it was like a food low. That's all we, we didn't talk about family. We didn't talk about anything. We, we talked about food that we missed and, and it showed, I gained like 30 pounds on, <laughs> on my first furlough. And, uh, thankfully didn't do that ever again. But, um, but, uh, after that, we got past those kind of things and just miss people, friends and family and, yeah. Yeah. I, I, similar experience for us as well. I mean, in time, you kind of forget the things that maybe you might've missed initially. And in time, it just becomes people that you miss, but you know, it, it, not like we'd give it up, you know, but um, yeah, yeah, you miss, miss your family. And for, for you guys, I mean, it's a long way to travel to Australia. I mean, it, it's not a quick trip, but for you guys, it's even longer. How long does it take you to get like door to door when you travel between countries. Yeah. So it's, it's about, um, 30 hours in the air, 27 to 30 hours, depending on exactly which route we take. And mm -hmm. then, you know, how the, it, we're, we have a, a minimum of four legs. Uh, Ooh. so yeah, so it, it really just depends. It, it'll take, you know, we've, we've done it in like, um, 
almost two days time that we've done in like four days time, you know, when we were going the cheap route rather than the uh, oh, uh, best route. Yeah. That's brutal. <laughs> it is. That's, that's figure brutal. out what it's way it's worth the money. Don't take the cheap route. You're <laughs> yeah. like in the airport for 11 hours. Oh yeah. yeah. Especially with kids and stuff too, for yeah. sure. So is there anything when you, if I, when you're back home, is there anything that you miss from Indonesia? I miss my Yepa family. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, and Nasi Padang. It's a, it's a food here. Uh, It's right. It, Chris, it is so delicious. It's like this, Mm. you get on the side of the street, right? It's in this brown paper, kind of wax paper. Mm. rice chicken and vegetables and i don't know some kind of secret sauce they put mm. on there and uh, it's so good uh, um oh and uh, the thing i i really miss besides the, my friends here um here you know we're right on the equator we're like four degrees south of the equator so mm-hmm. 530 to 530 every day all day you know <laughs> 365 days of the year I've got routine. I mean, I've got, you know, it's like routine every day, go to bed, get up same time, go to bed the same time. And it Mm -hmm. fluctuates, you know, a little bit, but in generally speaking, and every time we go on the furlough, we go uh, back to the States, you know, kind of in, in the middle of summer. And it's like, it's like daylight at nine o'clock. I'm like, (laughs) like the worst, worst thing. I, I, I used to miss seasons and I do miss seasons. Like uh, my boys, Uriah saw snow when he was two, but the rest of us haven't seen snow in, you know, in I guess 13 years. And so um, we miss the seasons changing, but whenever I'm back, when we're here, I will miss the seasons. When When we're there, I miss the routine of every day. Yeah. So you're only four degrees off the equator. Yeah. You, it's pretty warm all year. Hey. Yeah. It's, it's warm. It's, it's hot. <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't, it doesn't bother us. I mean, like, uh, we, we haven't, um, like, we just decided early on we wouldn't, a lot of our missionary friends have air conditioners in their um, bedroom. Now I'm in my office. I have an air conditioner. You can kind of see it back there. I have an air conditioner in my office just because I've got all my books and my computer stuff in here. And the humidity just is, I mean, it's, it ravages books and electronics Mm. and other things. But, um, but we decided we wouldn't sleep with air conditioning because when we go to the village then you're just super miserable because there's no chance of air out there. But when we, when we first uh, started going to the village, we uh we uh it was so hot we could not get to sleep without some kind of fan and so we just had one little solar panel and a little car battery and i had like this uh dc fan so a camping fan about eight inches you know Mm -hmm. and i rigged up this timer it was like a 30 minute timer because we couldn't run it all night because it would run our battery down and so it we'd run it 30 minutes and we would wait till we're, you know, so tired. We're just about to pass out. We'd turn on the, the fan 
and you just pray that you could fall asleep before the the timer ran out and uh there was several times where after after the timer would click off and kelly would say can we run it one more time <laughs> yeah i bet man now Ooh. we sleep in the same village no fan under a quilt you know i mean that, that's how oh you acclimate like, yeah we're totally acclimated to the weather that's pretty wild how's it been for your boys growing up you know i think they've had a pretty awesome uh you know childhood um they don't know any different really uh you know <laughs> our oldest oldest is 15 and he's starting to you know put some things together in terms of differences of here and there but um man i mean chris they've got to be you know to do some really cool things and be you know some of the first western light-skinned people to ever step foot in certain villages and you know, take canoe rides down, you know, just, I don't know. I think they've had a pretty cool experience myself and really got to see um, life, you know, in a very different context and to have some perspective that I uh, just, I'm so thankful that they have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, I didn't want to impose my thoughts on it, but I was thinking, you know, growing up like that'd be pretty cool for a boy. That'd be pretty cool. Yeah. Well, I think so. I think, you know, I hope when they look back, they don't, uh, I hope they, they, they see it as uh, a benefit as something gained, not missed. I don't think that they will. I don't, I don't know. We'll see. We'll let them talk for themselves in about 10 years when their mm. brain is fully developed. Right. <laughs> yeah now now eventually i guess with visas and all that kind of stuff eventually they'll move back to the u.s is that right right yeah actually uh i don't even know if you're aware we're all preparing we're going to transition back uh move back to the states actually this year um okay. yeah so kind of two parts of that one thing is that the work here uh, is at a stage where we really feel like they they uh, need us to, you know, let's like your kids, you know, in order for them to fully mature, they need to move out, you know, of the basement and, uh, you know, get out on their own uh, for that last bit of maturing. Well, unfortunately, the Edpa can't get out of our basement. Um, uh, we're, we're, we're living in their basement, really. And mm -hmm. so we, uh, you know, the church and the translation team is at a place where in order to, to grow a little more, we feel like they need some, uh, some independence, uh, mm. less, less of our presence. So, we're, um, so that's, that's the primary reason I, uh, plan to continue. I make, uh, I'll make at least two trips a year back and forth to do the translation consulting and, uh, some, uh, training for the, the church. Um, but they've been, they've been, uh, you know, the, the pastors of the church for, you know, we organized the church two years ago. Oh gosh. Oh, yeah. Two and a half years ago now. And they've fully independent. They've been doing their own thing for, for that long. And the translation team mm -hmm. is at that point as well. And so we're, the, the other thing is we, uh, 
you know, have this sense of uh, call to help mobilize other missionaries, help get, Mm -hmm. um, there's a real need uh, for more people. During this time, I've had, you know, at least five different tribal groups come to me specifically and say, is there someone like you who can come help us the way that you help the Yetpa people, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, there's a need to help people get more people get on the field. So anyway, that's, we're moving into that type of ministry, kind of a missions mobilization ministry while, while continue to give some oversight and assistance, probably more assistance uh, to the work here. So they're mm-hmm. fixing to get a big, big change in their worldview my boys. Oh yeah. Gosh, I can't imagine what that would be like. That'd be a tremendous difference for them. Not going to visit now, going to stay. Yeah. Right. Well, maybe somebody listening will uh, say, Hey, maybe that's something I could look into. And uh, who knows? You never know what God's going to use to set somebody on a path. That's exactly. I mean, it was just, it was such a random thing that my professor Preben Bong said to me, you know, at just at that moment of, and just, I've always told it was, it was a simple, just, and, and I always say, I don't understand. Why did I not know? Why did I, it seemed like it was a kind of a, you know, uh, a, an obvious thing that there would be people groups, still languages who still needed the Bible, but I needed somebody to actually say it to me. And once mm-hmm. it was said, it, I couldn't unforget it. I mean, I couldn't forget it. I couldn't unknow it. Mm. I just continue to think about what does that mean? What are the implications of that? You know, and man, it just, it just wore on my soul to, to think, you know, one day I, I'm going to look Jesus in the, in face to face. And the one thing that I would not be able to say was I didn't know, you know, oh, you know, and so Mm. I could not unlearn that simple fact. And it just, it became a very, compelling call yeah so maybe there's somebody here listening that will not be able to forget it yeah yeah let's let's hope for that let's hope for that and Wycliffe Australia is awesome yeah 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 I've got I've got some good mates down there and uh uh involved with uh Wycliffe Australia great Got a good presence here in Papua too. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's well, technically, it's not that far. You know, there's there's no place that um, Australia is <laughs> on the way to, really. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's 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 about as close as you get. Uh, so, well, I know you've got a hard out, Chase. I know you got a meeting you got to get to. But um, before you go, uh, how can people support you and your family in your ministry if they'd like to do that? What can people do to to help you out? You know, I would, I would, and it's not, you know, missionaries often say this, but there's a reason why missionaries often say this. It, I would say definitely primarily to pray. Um, what, what's going on in the Yetfa area in terms of turning, turning the primary oversight of the ministry over to them. This is a massive thing. And this is a thing that, uh, a lot of people are watching to see, um, we, we fell into a unique area with, with these guys who have this call and this drive 
And we really want them to succeed in making this transition to mm. what do you do when, you know, the Western missionary isn't there to kind of drive the, the process. Um, and so you could certainly pray for those two guys, Sion and Yeri. Um, and, uh, and for us, you know, as a family, as we also transition to, um, to, man, we had so many people. And I know, you know, Lynn and Brenda Rayburn, who just came alongside of us and really helped us in so mm -hmm. many ways. And we want to do that for other people as well, to come alongside mm -hmm. of people that God is calling uh, into missions to help them to get there and do well uh, mm -hmm. in what God's calling them to do. And so that would be that would be the primary the primary thing. Okay. Yeah, for sure, man. Definitely. So we'll be praying for you. And that's, that's going to be a big shift for you guys. Big change. Cause you've been yep. there for a while now. That's, yeah. Uh, and that's the other thing is it's, it, I was telling somebody the other day, we've not, we don't have Papu out of our blood. You know, we, we love it here. You know, it's not like we're the disgruntled <laughs> missionaries going home from that. <laughs> uh, we're not discouraged. We're actually incredibly encouraged by seeing what God has done here. Uh, but, and we love, we love the people here. And so it's a, it's a big, it's a big challenge, but that's also one of the things that reassures me that it's really God who's, who's leading us forward on this. Um, because otherwise we would just, we just keep on keep on doing what we're doing now. We really could, but I don't think it would be best for them. And I think there's something else that needs to be done. So, yeah, yeah that I, I suppose making that transition at, at different points in your life and in your ministry, it's important. And it sounds like you're doing a great job of recognizing that. Which is really yeah, cool. I'm not sure God's given me a chance to <laughs> ignore it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, Chase, man, I sure appreciate it. We should do this again sometime, man, because I had a whole bunch of stuff I was going to bring up and stuff, but we just kind of scratched the surface on a lot of it. You're, what you do is so interesting and, you know, just the way you live. And I know there's a hundred different stories we could get into, but uh, maybe we'll do it again another time. I really enjoyed catching back up with you and seeing you uh, getting to chat with you, man. Yeah, really fun. Cool. I enjoy it too. I really do. Um, it's, it's, you know, you don't, uh, you don't always get the chance to do that that much with, you know, you know, people all over the world, but you don't always get to catch yeah. up with them. So it's cool. Yeah. But yeah, man. Well, if it's, if it's cool with you, we'll uh, draw it up and pull it up all there right. for now with an eye towards uh, doing it another time, man. Absolutely. Anytime. Awesome. I very, really appreciate it. Chase. Thanks. All right. Talk to you all later, right, Chris. Man. Have a good one. Thank you for coming along on our journey today. I'm thankful for you and the valuable time you've spent with us. I'm hoping and praying for good things and many blessings for you and all that you do. I look forward to getting together with you again soon. Until then, this is Chris Miller, the host of PC Speaking, signing off, and I bid you 